Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on August 7th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals panel overturns a state law that permanently disenfranchises certain felons from voting. Then we speak with Mississippi 2nd District Congressman Benny Thompson about the recent indictments of former President Donald Trump. Plus, a new report looks at the connection between rural counties, race, and the state's high maternal mortality rate. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB. Think Radio. State laws that strip voting rights from those convicted of certain felonies have been ruled unconstitutional. A panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals made that decision Friday. The two judges ordered the Secretary of State to stop enforcing the provision. The law has disenfranchised people for a variety of felonies, including tree larceny, forgery, murder, and bigamy, with little hope of ever having their voting rights restored. Our Mike McKee and speaks with attorney John Youngwood of the law firm Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett based in New York. Youngwood was one of the litigators challenging the state law. The difference was that case was primarily uh, tied to a claim of racial discrimination, largely tied to the enactment of 241. I think it's beyond dispute that uh, when 241 was adopted in 1890 as part of the Mississippi Constitution that there were racial reasons behind the adoption that it was designed to disenfranchise black African-American voters. And the question in Harness was not whether it was originally enacted with racial uh, animus, but whether or not the fact that the legislature over the years um, amended 241 to add uh, and change which crimes were disenfranchising, whether or not that cleansed the original statute of the Um, racial nature of it. The Fifth Circuit effectively held that it did, and the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. The claim on which we succeeded today also challenged 241, uh, but did so um, on the basis that uh, 241 violates the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution, uh, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. We argued and the court found that disenfranchising somebody for life, even after their sentence is completed, is punishment, uh, and it found that it is cruel and unusual, and it found that there was a national consensus among the other states where the uh, supermajority of them don't permit 
lifetime disenfranchisement under these circumstances, that if you look at all those things together, 241, which provides for the enumerated crimes, lifetime disenfranchisement was, in fact, uh, cruel and unusual and therefore a violation of the Eighth Amendment. To your understanding, is there any indication as to whether this ruling will go to an en banc panel? I think the next step is up to the state to decide uh, whether, as we hope, they'll accept this ruling as the correct ruling. Uh, they certainly have the option of seeking uh, rehearing or seeking rehearing on banc. Uh, they obviously have the option of seeking uh, Supreme Court review as well. We, we haven't had any contact with them. We don't know what next steps they'll take, and I'm sure they're just reading the decision. And how did your firm become involved in this case? Um, we've been doing work, me specifically and a number of people on my team, have been doing work in Mississippi for since 2016. We've handled a number of cases pro bono down there. Uh, we've handled uh, policing case, First Amendment cases, a number of other cases, cases involving religious liberty. Um, and this case um, we brought in uh, 2018 in partnership with the Southern Poverty Law Center. It seemed like an issue that needed attention we were fortunate enough to be able to partner with them and bring it forward. Okay. And so to my understanding, now that this ruling has been finalized, now that this case has been ruled on, it's either up to the state of Mississippi to accept it or to appeal the decision? It's up to the state of Mississippi to accept it or, or I guess to seek further appellate review either in the Fifth Circuit or or beyond in the in the Supreme Court. If the state of Mississippi were to accept this ruling, what would that change for felons in the state and their voting rights? So for any, so we represent a class of people who have completed their sentence, meaning that they're at a minimum out of jail. Those, so anyone incarcerated, this would not change their current status. That's part of the basis that we brought it under, which is that you have to have completed your sentence. Uh, but those who have completed you know, their debt to society would have their voting rights immediately restored. The numbers of people in that category are almost certainly in the tens of thousands. It you know, requires a complicated calculation of whether you were convicted of a disenfranchising offense and whether you've completed your sentence. But we give uh, various statistics to the court, and the court, I think on page seven of the decision, you know, talks about that this could um, certainly be affecting uh, you know, 10 or 20 or more thousand people effectively immediately if the state were to accept this. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask next. What, how, how quickly would that change be implemented? Uh, I mean, as a, as a technical matter, it'll take a couple of weeks or a month or two for it to get back to the district court and district court to implement it, but it certainly uh, could be reasonably immediate. And I wanted to ask you, is in your experience, your expertise, is this part of maybe a larger national pattern to do away with these types of laws? Well, that that's... In, frankly, very much the argument we made to the court, um, which is, you know, the last time the Supreme Court looked at, uh, actually had a case on this issue was about 50 years ago, and the status of the laws in the country were very, very different. The vast majority of states would not permit um, a felon, former felon, I'd say, to vote. Um, That has been a growing change year by year. There are states that change their laws either as in Florida, by amendment, um, or in other states, by other means. Uh, The court, at the end of this uh, decision, or the majority of the panel uh, at the end of this decision, has an appendix that lists the states and actually shows the movement over the last 50-plus years. The reason we believe we won is because there is now a growing consensus and a firm consensus in the country 
that forbidding people to vote for the rest of their lives for a crime they commit when they're very young is is not appropriate. Have you received any feedback or any endorsement of this maybe from some of the individuals in Mississippi that you're representing? I believe you said it's class action. We, we, we've been in, we've been, we've reached out to all our clients. We've been able to reach a few of them and um, those we've reached are looking forward to voting. John Youngwood is an attorney with the law firm Simpson, Thatcher and Bartlett in New York. Coming up, Mississippi's 2nd District Congressman reacts to the third indictment against former President Donald Trump. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Former President Trump has been federally indicted for the third time for allegedly conspiring to have election results overturned in the 2020 presidential election. He has pled not guilty. Mississippi's 2nd District Congressman, Democrat Benny Thompson, chaired the committee that investigated the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. I'm not surprised that the indictment occurred, but it's a sad day when the president of the United States in his official capacity refused to take the advice uh, of his own lawyers that he had lost the election and proceeded to promote what our evidence as a committee, and obviously evidence presented by the special counsel, proved him to be wrong, but he kept promoting uh, something that was not true. And so it's a sad day for our country, but it's a, a, a good day for democracy in this country simply because it proves that even a former president of the United States is not above the law. He used that same term. He said, this is a sad day for America. In terms of him being charged with these crimes? Well, it's a sad day for Donald Trump, uh, the individual, but for our country, our founding fathers developed a set of standards that we have to adhere to. And those standards talks about the rule of law. And it's the rule of law that we uphold every day. Donald Trump took an oath as president of the United States to uphold the law. But we've now found that he's accused of not doing that. So he'll have his day in court. Uh, He'll have uh, an opportunity, just like any other person that's accused of a crime, uh, to defend himself. And I'll I'll defend his right uh, to have his day in court. And uh, ultimately, uh, he will be judged by his peers as to whether or not he's innocent or guilty. There were 
six co-conspirators mentioned, but not their names. Why do you think that is? Do you have any idea? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I know that our evidence uh, that we discovered the times that we were looking at it, there were some other actors involved as to why and what strategy the special counsel is using. Those individuals might end up offering testimony to support the government's case. I, I don't know, but I do know that just based on the evidence that's in the public arena, that there are some individuals, former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani and others, uh, that have significant evidence toward the government's case. So I would not be surprised if some of them were not called as witnesses uh, against former President Trump. This is the third indictment. The other ones, uh, classified documents kept at Mar-a-Lago that were requested to be returned to the government, uh, hush money, Stormy Daniels involving falsifying business records, a total of 78 charges, plus officials in Georgia are investigating and contemplating prosecuting the former president. What does all of this say? What does it mean? It says to the ordinary citizen that a person was elected president of the United States who did not have controls of his own day-to-day activities. Uh, He did not understand nor respect the rule of law. As a business person, uh, he could do certain things and there would be no penalty. But when you're in the public sector operating at the government level, there are guardrails. Clearly, Donald Trump did not adhere to the guardrails that our founding fathers put together so that government would not harm its citizens or allow government to run amok. We are a democracy. And so all those charges are clearly what happens when you disrespect the rule of law. And it's unfortunate that he'll spend the rest of his life uh, defending uh, all those actions during his presidency that all he had to do was follow the law. Those laws were not written against him. They were written so that the rule of law would prevail under any circumstances. Uh, And so it didn't matter who was elected president. Uh, The law is law. And his interpretation, in most instances, uh, was Trump's law. And Trump's law is not the Constitution that he was sworn to uphold. Uh, You can't take classified documents to your house and read them at your leisure and say, I haven't done anything wrong. And so uh, our founding fathers and their infinite wisdom were clear that in a democracy, no one is above the law. And that if you somehow think you are, uh, you will face uh, the long arm of the law in those situations. And this is Donald Trump's uh, uh, dilemma that he alone created. 
In your estimation, why is it that you think he is leading in the polls among Republicans and many Republicans will not discuss or don't want to really talk about these indictments and anything involving President Trump and in some instances are standing up for him saying he's being persecuted? Well, I just think it's the nature of who he is. Uh, He has, uh, as president, always played himself as the victim, uh, that somehow he's fighting for people. And in response, every individual that would disagree with him, he'd do his uh, best to destroy them. And so he has created an atmosphere of being a bully to anybody who disagrees with him. And so uh, with the exception of two or three members who are running for president this time, everybody squarely on his side, even though they know that he's wrong, they are afraid to step forward. When your own attorney general tells you that we've looked high and low, that we, we've we looked and we could not find in any instances of fraud or anything with the elections, when your own general counsel tells you the same thing and you refuse to follow the legal advice of the people you've hired and start following the advice of people whose legal authority was questionable to begin with, uh, and that's part of why he's where he is today, because the real lawyers told him, Donald Trump, you have lost the election. We looked for fraud. We looked for all these things. Our committee, the January 6th committee, we uh, we looked high and low. The majority of witnesses that we interviewed in all the public hearings for that part were primarily either individuals that he had employed in his administration or they were Republican elected officials uh, who were sworn to conduct elections. That was Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi's 2nd District. Coming up, rural Mississippi has some of the worst maternal health care rates in the nation, according to a new report. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Maternal mortality rates across the country are on the rise. And in Mississippi, those numbers are much worse. It's a trend that crosses racial lines, but there are more cases among people of color. Our Kobe Vance speaks with researcher Catherine Sachs, Associate Director for Health Economics at the Milken Institute, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank. She says the Southeast has some of the most underserved counties in the nation, making it harder for pregnant folks to seek help. We looked at race and age in particular. How were maternal mortality rates different 
between black and white people of uh, any ethnicity and between people 15 to 24, 25 to 34, and 35 to 44. What were some of the biggest findings that you were interested in looking at? So the biggest thing, I think, is just how high the rates are in some of these southern states. Alabama, Mississippi in particular, really are the heart of the crisis. Their mortality ratios are just so much higher than a lot of the rest of the country. The other thing we really saw was that while racial disparities were still very large in these southern states, they were not quite as large as the national disparity between black and white folks. So it's true that there's still a large disparity. The fact is, in these states, everyone is suffering. The rates are very high, regardless of race. I wanted to talk specifically first about the rate of deaths occurring in vulnerable counties. I saw on your report, Mississippi is leagues beyond everybody else. In fact, the number of just deaths that occur in vulnerable counties, as y'all define them, uh, surpasses the total number of counties in the next closest state that might be considered vulnerable. What were your thoughts seeing that data? And can you help describe what it means for Mississippians? So for Mississippi, almost half of mothers who passed away lived in those vulnerable counties. I think the first thing it says is that a lot more of the counties in Mississippi are considered vulnerable, according to our Community Explorer. And almost one-third of the population of Mississippi lives in one of those vulnerable counties. That is a very high percentage, and that, I think, says a lot about how rural Mississippi is, things about, like, the average income, vulnerability along a a number of margins. Can you talk more about the racial divide that y'all are identifying? I see that between 2018 and now, there's been growth. Black people and African-Americans are seeing a higher rate of growth than their white counterparts. And now, granted, both are going up. But what do you think is contributing to that divide that's growing? And also, what's contributing overall to the, the risks that are arising here? One of the big things we have to think about is the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, That is one of the reasons potentially that we've seen such a big increase over these three years. And the same way that the burden of COVID deaths were borne more heavily by minority populations, you see that in other deaths too. So, you know, maternal deaths were affected by COVID-19, be that because people couldn't get to hospitals, hospitals were overburdened, people were scared to go, you know, prenatal care wasn't possible. Another possibility is just increased stress. I think that is something that the Black population bore a heavier part of that burden. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that's the disparities in Mississippi and other southern states versus the nation. Mississippi saw a lower disparity than the national average, I believe. What does that say about Mississippi, and what do you believe is contributing to that? I think what it says about Mississippi is that the situation is just poor across the board. The maternal mortality rate for white people between 15 and 44 is almost 40 deaths per 100,000 live births. So that in itself is higher than the national rate. Uh, The big disparities I think you're seeing in states where you have one racial or ethnic group that 
is doing much better. So in a state where you might have a pretty low white maternal mortality ratio, but high black one. In Mississippi, you're seeing uh, both are quite high. What do y'all define as a vulnerable county? How did y'all see that as a benchmark? The Community Explorer is a tool created by the research department at the Milken Institute. It took um, a couple hundred variables from the American Community Survey and found underlying patterns. And it sorted all of the 3,142, I believe, counties in the United States into 17 distinct profiles. So it really mined the data and found those underlying patterns. When the team then went and looked back at the counties that made up those profiles to characterize them, there were four that became known as the extremely vulnerable America. Those were counties where you had lower levels of educational attainment, earlier deaths, lower income, less access to health care, things that like that. Catherine Sachs is with the Milken Institute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.